This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Courtney, we're face to face again. Hello. Yes, we're back in the stuffy studio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't too bad today, actually. No, but I think um, the, the weather's improving. It's a bit colder outside yeah. um, and a bit windier, so it's, it's nice. It's yeah. hot and sticky, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, the last time I think it was there was sweat dripping from the ceiling in here. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It was, yeah. yeah, not great, but ah, we get through not. it. <laughs> we do. And, uh, yeah, I'm very excited about the chat that we've just had. Um, yeah. I'm excited for people to hear it. Yeah, so so we we have today a conversation with uh, Dr. Wendy Feng. Um, now I've actually known Wendy for quite a long time. Uh, we we I think we started our our masters in public health at very similar times. So we started doing our masters dissertation yep. um, at the same time, um, and that's when I found out that she's known my family for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty pretty funny when I found out um, that Wendy had my mum as a high school teacher. Mm way back when. Um, so you hear a little bit about that in the start of our conversation. Um, but uh, Wendy is such a lovely person to talk to. So it was really great that um, we could get her for this conversation today. Yeah, no, really good. Um, so when, yeah, Wendy's, similarly, Wendy's a colleague of mine now. She, she works kind of in the same team that I work with and my supervisor is her boss. Um, and we started you know, working on a, a couple of things together as well, which is really good. It's been a good experience. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's. I really was keen to get Wendy on because she's recently finished her PhD. She got awarded last year, I think. Um, and contrary to my experience so far, she had a pretty rocky yeah. experience with hers um, for various reasons that she'll sort of touch on in our conversation. But I thought it'd be really good to have a chat about it. Um, you know, for people to hear and people who are maybe doing a PhD or considering a PhD Absolutely. to hear about how you can navigate some of these challenges and that you can come out the other side. It's not all you know, doom and gloom. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, have a, have a listen to our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as we do. I get feedback. Okay, that's yeah. Good. So hopefully it's just a very quick after that. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I think good. mine was scheduled a month after. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, it looks like we're rolling. Hey. Which is good. So that all this is getting used. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> People can hear my sub story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that just leaves us to welcome uh, Dr. Wendy Feng to the podcast. Oh, <laughs> I, I haven't heard any like. Have anyone addressed me like that before? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, this is oh. so fancy. Oh, I'm like, glad that I'm the first. Then, <laughs> yeah, <a> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you yeah. haven't changed any of your like, uh, I don't know, driver's licenses. No, or- <laughs> I, I have this weird thing about using doctor for anything that's not research related because well, I I used to work at the airport and went um. 
We'd look uh, at the title in case we had a medical emergency on the on board. Yeah. So that's mm. why I'm a bit iffy about using it. Yeah, okay. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Yeah, but, you wouldn't want to be called up. Um, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, but that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as far as this podcast is concerned, you're a, definitely a doctor. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there uh, hopefully won't be any medical emergencies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I <would> hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, some, some of the people listening will know you because they're from the school, but yeah. some won't. Um, so do you want to just give us a quick background about yourself? Sure. So, hi, I'm Wendy, <laughs> um, and I guess I am about just over a year, within a year or around a year's time of, you know, doing my postdoc, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so between 20... 17 or 2018 to 2022, I did my PhD and I looked at older drivers with mild cognitive impairment and kind of like um, naturalistic driving outcomes. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was a fun time, fun four years. (laughs) Before that, I did my master's in public health at UWA. And before that, I did my undergraduate in human bio and pathology, which, um, yeah, towards the end of my undergraduate, I decided the very clinical stuff really wasn't for me, which is how I got into public health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And and before that, you had my mum as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. At <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Miss Chamberlain, That's right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. I, I can't. Well, the only thing I really remember about Miss Chamberlain was she was telling me how she had this surgery. Oh, and oh God. And <laughs> out the whole class. Yeah. Because she was, as a science teacher, as you do, she went into full graphic detail about what they did. Yeah. Oh. So a brief context, uh, a long time ago, my mum had a brain tumour and we love telling the surgery story because it is hilarious. Um, but also it does freak people out. So yes, I'm not surprised that that's the one memory that you have of my mum. Yeah, I don't remember anything else, but yeah. just that story where she was like, yeah, and they'll pull my face down. Yeah. And we, like You just had like a whole class of like year nine students <laughs> being like just traumatised in that one yeah. moment. Oh, you should tell your mum that I All right, well, I'll get mum to listen to the start of this podcast so she, she can yeah. remember that time. <laughs> I'm assuming she was under a general anaesthetic at the time. Uh, I would hope so. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, so yes. It sounds like quite graphic for someone who was out of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but my mum taught human biology, so it's kind of cool that you ended up doing human biology as, yeah. your, as your yeah. um, undergrad. I think she had me more of a, a general science teacher because yep. I, I actually never did human bio at in school, yeah. in high school, and I don't know why, but something possessed me to do human biology as a undergrad, mm-hmm. even though I'd never dabbled in the subject before, and I found out very quickly it wasn't for me, but I still stuck mm-hmm. out those three years. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so then you moved on to public health. Yeah, like in, in my final year of undergrad, we kind of had a public health unit, but it was a little bit, it felt a little bit like epidemiology, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of liked it, and I was like, you know what? Let me let me do a Masters of Public Health and, yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. Now, recently we were on a retreat together, a writing retreat <laughs> for work. Yes. And um, <laughs> you're telling us about um, the time when you were doing your Masters of Public Health. Yeah. And you were working crazy hours oh. and that you used to like having a nap in Professor Preen's lectures. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
gosh. I think, yeah, when you're just like, when you're in that age, or at least in your young 20s, I don't know how, but you just, you don't survive on sleep ever. (laughs) Or you just don't sleep or you just sleep at the wrong time. And I just don't know, but like... Yeah, David yeah. Preen's epidemiology. It's just his voice. Yeah. Just put you to sleep. <laughs> yeah, soothing voice. But, yeah. you know, I was such a keen student and I, you know, plonk myself in like the second or third row. Because, you know, you don't sit in the first row, but no. you sit in the second or third, right in the middle, you know, it right in his eye line <laughs> in like Hugh Roberts. And I, for the first minute, I'd be like, mm-hmm, yep. And then like my, like the ten, 10 minutes in, I was just like... And I just put my head on the table. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but somehow you just get through it. And I feel like, yeah, I, I... I, to my credit, I did get a HD in that unit. Nice. Mm. Um, so, you know, some learning strategies work and yeah. sometimes they just consist, you know, rest is very important. Yeah, it must be like the putting the textbooks under the pillow to absorb the information. <laughs> like, I think that's what you were doing. You're putting David Preen under your pillow to yeah. absorb his information while he's saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I think every time he, he will just bring that up now that he knows about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You're, you're obviously so good at epidemiology that you can do it in your sleep. Yeah. So I should a, say that to yeah. you next time. <laughs> yeah, so it's, from what I know of your research, you have a quantitative background, right? Yeah, I have a quantitative background, although given the research and like um, what I kind of looked at during my PhD, mm. I think I, I wish I did incorporate a qualitative Okay. Um, you know, even though a lot of the questions, you know, had like a close-ended response, they were like a binary outcome, yes or no, or they were like numerical, like yep. number of events. Um, I, I think given the subject um, with like driving and perception, it really would have been like worthwhile to do the like a qualitative, at least one of my um, publications if I did more of a qualitative study, mm-hmm. um, even if I... Um, you know, there's so many things I'd want to change. But one of them would have been to add like a small subset, um, like, a, like a subset of my study population and really just have like group interviews would have been really good or just really ask them to just talk about their perceptions of striving because mm. I did do face-to-face interviews um, when I still could. Unfortunately, my PhD did really was in the midst of coronavirus or the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, when I was doing face-to-face interview, one of the things I realised, because it was an older population, they love to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, they, And it's so weird because you, I, when I think about the differences, and I'm very glad that, well, I was the one who went and I was, you know, in charge of the interview, but, um, you know, for logistical purposes, we had two. And um, so I was partnered with someone from the ECU Survey Research Centre who came along with me. And she was a little bit older. She was actually, um, she didn't seem like it, but um, she was... 70? Mm-hmm. Like she she said she was close to retirement age, even though she didn't look it, but she was able to connect with this older population, you know, she could get them to open up, you know, in those initial conversations whilst I was, you know, setting up the interviews and all of that. And that was really helpful because when I think about it, if, you know, if you had rather than me who was in my early 20s um, going to someone's house um, and trying to have a conversation with them who I don't know, um, you know, who is, um, well, 
everyone in my study population had to be 65 years and older, I feel like a, it would be a lot harder mm-hmm. to really get that conversation flowing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I'm very grateful that I was paired with her because um, I think I was supposed to be paired with someone else who may have been roughly my age, mid-30s. And you, yeah, it was just like, very, I was very lucky because I realised in, in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, like, you know, things could have gone differently. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it sounds like an interesting experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's collaboration and research is essential, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. I just, you, when I think about it, it's like you really do rely on, you know, other collaborators, you know, mm-hmm. your peers, your colleagues, your supervisors. Um, but you also really rely on the people in your studies because, you know, I wouldn't have gotten any information if it weren't for them. They are my study population. But mm-hmm. um, interestingly, it was a really good um, way to get feedback on how I wanted to structure my research in a way because they are the study population um, and they have their own perceptions on driving, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and one of the things that became very obvious to me very early on is that they felt a little bit hurt by the stigma surrounding older drivers. But when you think about it, it's, you know, that driving, they had been driving for 40 plus years or something like that. And it's very automatic for them. And even though, you know, their maybe their reaction times are a little bit slower, they, they knew what they were doing. And it, driving really is very automatic, automated process. Um, mm-hmm. So I think they were you know, it was really nice to get the feedback that, hey, we're, yes, we're a little bit slower, but we're doing this for our safety. And it's it was really encouraging to see that, that they were aware that they were getting a little bit older and, you know, their reaction time was slower. And, you know, they were taking the necessary precautions of, you know, individual to them for what they thought was necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, did you come across anyone who thought that they maybe shouldn't be driving any longer because of their limitations? No. So the study population that we had, they, they did, they were around 65 to 70. Um, okay. um, you know, there were a couple of older people. Definitely one of them was 90. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, when we were talking about, you know, how do you feel about driving, just general, generally, they were like, yeah, I know when it's safe to drive and when it's not safe to drive. So mm-hmm. um, you have the um, the concept of self-regulation is kind of when you take, you know, you avoid driving at night or you avoid driving in peak hour traffic because, you know, those are more risky driving situations. And they were like, well, I just avoid going out during those times. Mm-hmm. So they, they made it work for them. Um, so I wasn't, yeah, I, it was in my ethics that, you know, if I was looking at someone's driving and they were, you know, just dangerous. Yeah, like near misses or anything because I did have a tracking device in their car as well. That was a proponent of my um, study. Mm. Um, I would immediately get flagged. Um, but yeah, no one seemed, no one was driving very risky. And, you okay. know, it was in my ethics that if someone was exhibiting signs of like dangerous driving, we would let them know. But yeah, no, I didn't okay. think I had to let anyone know. So, so maybe we should go back to the beginning then. Um, <laughs> Because we obviously jumped into a yeah, few findings a and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, so like how many people did you have? And, and there were, I'm assuming there was a survey and then you've also talked about a tracking device. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> let me, let me try and explain my PhD. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we had, I guess, a longitudinal component 
and we had a subset which was more of a naturalistic component. Um, so with the longitudinal component, it was a survey, a telephone survey, and it was we had about a thousand participants at baseline, and they would do like a forty-minute survey on just driving outcomes. Um, yeah, like just this massive survey. And then we also did a couple of, um, we did the mild cognitive, we tested for mild cognitive impairment using the MMSC, so mini mental state examination. And mm-hmm. that's kind of how we um, classified people as having mild cognitive impairment or not having mild cognitive impairment, which um, was a limitation of my study is that it wasn't a clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so of these 1,000 people who were interviewed in the baseline um, telephone interview, we asked um, participants if they were willing to have a face-to-face interview. So that was where I came in and I interviewed them. And it was um, – we also had additional um, – mental cognitive um, tests. So we had the MOCA, um, Montreal Cognitive Assessment. And I also, that's where I installed a tracking device into their vehicle. So this tracking device, um, it kind of just gave me real-time driving information Mm -hmm. so I could see where they were going, um, how long they were driving for, their speed that they were driving for, and if we had any adverse events. So if um, because of... I guess the technology. So essentially I could see where they were speeding over the speed limit of that road. I could also see if they had any harsh accelerations, harsh braking or harsh cornering. And yeah, those were like my adverse driving outcomes. Okay, just Um, quickly, I'm assuming they knew about this device. Yes, (laughs) I didn't sneak into their car and um, I I, put it under the car. Yeah, (laughs) I was like, oh, can I just borrow your keys just for a second? No, um, and that was really surprising because when we asked them in those face-to-face interviews, you know, we explained that, you know, we would have, you know, two researchers coming to your house to do some assessments and some further questionnaire. And we wanted to install this tracking device into your car for a period of two weeks. And we'd monitor their driving over two weeks. And, you know, they were, I I was very surprised at the number who actually said yes, because mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure, but I think, I think, you know, if someone asked me, would you like to participate in something like this? I'm like, I'm not too sure. Um, And I think that that might just be like a generational differences. They were very, very welcoming whenever I came over. You know, they'd be like, you want something to drink? You want something to (laughs) eat? Um, Yeah, here's my car. You know, just um, install it how you need to install it. And Yeah, it was just, I'm not sure if I would say yes to something like that, (laughs) but a lot of people said yes to me. So how many people did you end up getting that had the installation? We had a good, so we had 90 participants. Yeah. We were aiming for 150. Mm-hmm. However, whilst these face-to-face interviews took place between October 2019 mm-hmm. and February 2020, mm-hmm. so we had to very quickly stop these face-to-face mm-hmm. interviews. Um, and so this naturalistic component where we do look at their naturalistic driving patterns using those um, tracking devices, we were hoping that that was going to be longitudinal as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, because we 
you know, because of the pandemic, we had to stop that fieldwork and that data mm. is cross-sectional, um, yep. which is not bad, but it really would have been nice. You know, I think, I think COVID affected a lot of people's PhD and it took out, or I would say like a, one of the more novel aspects of my project, mm-hmm. my research project. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes sense because also people wouldn't have been driving as much. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you yeah. wouldn't have been able to collect the results anyway, even if you could do it, it, not face-to-face. Yeah, like, which is a shame. Yeah. And yeah. because it is an older population who are, you know, health-wise, they are at more risk, um, you know, you have to take that into consideration that even when we could resume field work, which was, I think, wasn't even, was quite still further along down the track, mm. this population, they still, you know, they were a little bit still adverse to yeah. going out even though it was starting to resume yeah. back to normal. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you used the word naturalistic. Did you want to just tell us a bit more about what that means? Yeah, in this so context? I guess naturalistic means like very observational. It's <laughs> the best way to describe it. It's we're just... We're trying to get observational data without interfering and mm-hmm. because and there's kind of a few techniques to in driving to get naturalistic driving data. And so this we only had a very, very small tracking device and it just it was only well for I guess our viewers, it was only about maybe ten centimeter by three centimetres, mm-hmm. this little device was very powerful, um, could get a lot of information for the size of it and would kind of just plug into a very hidden spot, um, an OBD2 port of your car. And the we monitored it for two weeks because maybe the first day you don't drive how you normally drive because you're kind of aware, oh, I know this researcher has put a tracking device in my car and we, you know, I'm just going to maybe drive not as fast yeah. or I'm not going to accelerate or um, accelerate so harshly or break so harshly. But eventually the idea was then to kind of almost forget that we were monitoring their driving. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we call naturalistic driving patterns, yeah, how, how you kind of just drive in the real world, in mm-hmm. your environments. If, um, if you think about it, um, comparing, in comparison, if you got data by asking participants to come and sit in a driving simulator. Um, You know, they're not used to the simulator and the environment of the driving simulator that they're driving in, it's not where they normally drive. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted them to continue driving honest, normal, drive how they normally drive and drive where they usually drive. That's Mm -hmm. what we mean by naturalistic. And so were you trying to find whether the older population had more adverse events? Yeah, so we were trying to compare um, older drivers with mild cognitive impairment and without mild cognitive impairment. And we wanted to see if they perhaps had more adverse driving events or whether they were self-regulating more. Um, Because self-regulation is almost, uh, it's very... in some cases, it's, a, it's very innate. You you may consciously make that decision, but you might not consider it. Like, you might not be aware that you're self-regulating. It's very natural process or concept. And we wanted to see whether those who had mild cognitive impairment may be self-regulating more. Were they just not driving in the rain as much or were they not driving at night as much and all of that? Um, but I think that... Thing with our study is that mild cognitive impairment, the 
the impairment associated with it is not to a very severe degree. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's kind of the results, I guess, <laughs> of my study is that we really didn't find any differences in older drivers with and without mild cognitive impairment. Um, and we did find that they may, I think that they do self-regulate a little bit more when driving at night and driving in the rain, which are, I guess, two of the kind of high risk situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, we didn't really find a difference in those naturalistic driving outcomes. So they didn't have more uh, like adverse driving events, like harsh braking, harsh cornering, speeding events and all of that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So and so that was sort of like the key. Those were the key kind of findings of your project. Yeah, and yeah. I was actually um, I was kind of pleased that those were the results because you know after interviewing and after talking with you know hundreds of my participants, you know I feel like they they well from my results it does seem that they're capable of being safe drivers and um, I almost wanted my results. And my findings to be like, hey, this study population, they're safe drivers and they do know how to regulate their driving. They do know when to stop and they do know when, how to drive safely or how um, how to like the behave. they undertake in behaviours which allow them to continue to drive safely. And it, it seems that a lot of them had a good support system and that they were consciously thinking about maybe one day I won't be able to drive. Um, you know, there was still a big proportion who didn't want to think about not <laughs> driving one day because mm-hmm. they had been driving for so long. Um, but, you know, there was some consideration from participants who were like, yeah, you know, like sometimes I just take public transport because it's just I feel safer, I'm not at the wheel, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was. I, I really wanted my... F- um, my findings of this study or I guess my when I put together my thesis to really emphasize that um, that we, we shouldn't stigmatize them so much. I think yeah. they were that study population doesn't want to be associated with they're too old to drive or that mm-hmm. saying. You, you always yeah. see those comments of people being like, oh, you know, after 80 years old, you should not drive anymore. And it's like, <laughs> but why? Where's the evidence for that? Is yeah. You know, there's a couple of cases, and I think those are such one-off cases, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps someone's just had a medical episode, and I think that's a different case, but you can't generalise this whole older drivers yeah. and being like, nope, you should stop after age of 80. <laughs> you know? I, th- I think we're inherently biased because... I'm sure all of us have got stuck behind an older driver that's driving yeah. slowly and mm-hmm. felt frustrated and thought that's really dangerous yeah. because I'm going to overtake them and potentially that could cause an accident. So, well, who's being dangerous, them or the person reacting? You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Like, I, I know we get frustrated on the roads because I'm definitely guilty of that. But And I, I think just the thing is that you have to consider is that it, it's not always older drivers as well, um, but they are doing it because... For them, I guess it does feel a little bit safer. I guess there is a point where you have to, um, you have to realize whether oh, this might be dangerous that they're underspeeding, which is something I wish that I had looked at during my PhD was the underspeeding rather mm. than overspeeding. Unfortunately, mm. the technology hadn't been exactly set up for that yet, but that okay. would have been a really, really good one to look at. Mm, yeah. Interesting. <laughs>
So your PhD and your thesis and your findings were one part of your PhD experience. <laughs> yes, <And laughs> definitely. Now, because we've we've spoken about our PhDs and our process of going through it, and I'm still a long-suffering PhD student. <laughs> Courtney's very close to not being anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you, you did have a few challenges that you had to overcome, right? Yeah. I mean, I had a very interesting PhD experience. <laughs> mm. um, and I won't go into a lot of detail about, but I guess for people at the school, it is, I, and I think for a lot of people, is that you realise that your your research and your work and your actual thesis itself is one component that you have to deal with. But you also have to deal with this major logistical side that I don't think you realize how much it how much it makes up of your PhD um I guess because when you're a student doing your PhD you depend I can see I came from straight out of my undergrad straight into my master's straight into a PhD I did a bit of research work on the side but that was also from my PhD supervisor and um I guess I hadn't been in, I wasn't employed in research for very long either. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was, I was, I guess <laughs> I kind of just believed everything that my supervisor said. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think if you had knowledge in your fields, say you, before you undertook a PhD in your field of research, you you perhaps you you felt like you had more of a valid argument. So one of the things that I regret in my PhD is I didn't stand up for my ideas mm-hmm. that I wanted to do. I just followed my supervisor blindly, and if she said, um, you know, I felt like it, it, it. As sometimes I didn't feel like it was my PhD. I felt like sometimes it was our PhD <laughs> a bit too much. Um, okay. I think um, a, a lot of PhD students experience that yeah um, uh, yeah I think it's quite a common a common thing particularly like I followed the same pathway as you yeah. say, undergrad to master's to PhD no real break in between yeah no other jobs no other life experience that's it um I definitely did the same thing yeah. so I just followed my supervisors like they know what they're doing exactly. so I'm gonna do what they suggest because it seems like a good idea yeah because you're like yeah. they're the expert and Absolutely. I am their student are they like I should follow them because it's yeah. correct and so and yeah. then when you get out of that PhD you kind of realize you're that like, there's all these other people that have all these different opinions yeah. on how to do things exactly um, and it's it's a whole new learning curve yeah, yeah. um and it, it is yeah I really wish that there was some things that I did differently me my PhD that I should have almost stood up for a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I guess for PhD students, like if you have an idea, like argue for it. Don't just blindly accept it if, yeah. you know, your PhD supervisor says th- no. Yeah, yeah, and I think that makes the case for having more than one supervisor as well yeah. um, with different knowledge. Did you only have one? No. <laughs> Sometimes well, it felt like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I guess, yeah, I, ha- I had my primary supervisor yeah. and then the next supervisor down was um well, she was retiring <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, she sure. she tried to help me as much as she could but Absolutely. she she was aware that I had a primary supervisor and she was aware of my situation and she tried to um be involved as much as she could okay. without mm-hmm. it yeah 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 because 
I think that that is one of the risks, especially if you haven't got a lot of independent research yeah. um, experience. Yeah. Um, so I was I was lucky to come into research through different projects, working for different people throughout yeah. the years. Mm. And I've, you know, I, got, I lucked out with my supervisor, my primary supervisor, <laughs> and also my secondary <laughs> ones. <laughs> Hope he's listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, do, I did have the um, benefit of having some experience yeah. where I could, they might make a comment or a suggestion and I could maybe push back sometimes and say, well, actually, that's not what I was thinking and this is why I wasn't thinking that. Yeah. You know, whereas it sounds like you were sort of boxed in a little bit. Yeah. And I think the one thing that I guess for all PhD students is that you have your, I guess, your primary supervisor and I guess you are working with them because you know, your primary supervisor is an expert in that field. But very quickly, you realise that your PhD project, you know, I guess when you're starting to find out that, you know, when you're doing your lit review and all of that, very slowly the student becomes the expert, more so than the supervisor, Mm. very quickly. And I think, you know, so the opinions or the ideas that you have with your research project, they don't just come out of the blue. They they happen because you're... Slowing, so you're slowly becoming more knowledgeable in this area, probably more than your supervisor. And so, you know, really, if you really do think you have an idea, push for it and mm-hmm. really involve all your other supervisors as much as you can. And I think part of the reason why I didn't do that was because I came from a bit of an interesting situation. So my first couple of, um, I think when I started my PhD I was actually at Curtin mm-hmm. um, because that's where my previous research centre was based. And so I actually transferred to UWA when the research centre moved to UWA. And so we had to find all new supervisors because I lost all my PhD supervisors at Curtin when we made the transfer to UWA. And so I almost felt a little bit like I was being a burden because suddenly um, – you know, I had to find new supervisors and I felt like, oh, they didn't sign up for this at all, you know. Um, bless them. <laughs> and I feel mm-hmm. like one of my supervisors, I'll, I'll name him because he's brilliant, Kevin Murray. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, like, you know, I, I think he was put on for logistical reasons. I mean, he seemed very happy to do it, <laughs> but because he was, I think he was only 5 or 10% because we needed a supervisor and mm-hmm. I just felt like, oh, my gosh, these these people didn't sign up for it. They probably, you know, and it's not bad that they don't have any knowledge in road safety. They, they've probably never worked in the area before, but I, I felt like I was like, I'm so sorry to, like, bother you almost. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, and so that's why I feel like it was also hard for me to talk to my other supervisors yeah. because I had one primary supervisor who I had followed from Curtin to okay. UWA. Okay, I was going to ask. Yeah. So yeah, your primary supervisor was at Curtin and you followed them. Yes. And then you had to yeah, get, get other... a whole new supervisor. So team. why did you have to change all of your other supervisors? Why couldn't you have still had some Curtin people? <laughs> um, there was just some issues and drama, <laughs> I guess. Okay, um, so some, some, some personal politics. relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah unfortunately, okay. university politics and okay. all of that. Okay. I, I wish they, they were an excellent supervisor team at Curtin who had, oh, the, like the plethora of experience. So I think one of them was um, Kate Bremold, mm-hmm. um, who 
um, some people at the school may know. She's very, very knowledgeable and very quantitative based mm. stats knowledge. It's just mind blowing. So it would have been really good to have her as well. Mm. But um, unfortunately, yeah, I lost my whole supervisory team from Curtin. <laughs> okay. yeah. So I like the fact we're having this conversation with you looking back on this from a position of having completed mm. your PhD now. Mm-hmm. Yes. But at the time, I'm sure it was stressful and, you know, yeah. a and problem. I, I think because I, I guess when I was starting out, I was very naive almost. Like I just really believed that my supervisor knew exactly what was the best (laughs) for me. I really believed that. And, you know, I'm sure she did have her, you know, best interests at heart for me. But looking back on it, I'm like, but why did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) But why? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's definitely a PhD is a whole learning experience and this is when people ask me what's your PhD like I'm like I definitely say I don't regret doing it but it was a very insightful experience Mm -hmm. just about research in general and just the logistical factors that you have to think about that aren't exactly related to research. I do think a commonality when the, that of the, like a thought process that PhD students have, particularly towards the end, is like you realise that people just don't know anything. Yeah, like, <laughs> like even like research articles that are published, like people just don't know yeah. anything. They have yeah. no idea, and it's just we're just trying to figure <laughs> things out. And uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting yeah. thing because when you talk to people who haven't done any form of research, yeah. they they a lot of them blindly just believe researchers and doctors. But if you look at that research or doctor, you know that they're just trying their best. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's kind of funny because on the retreat as well, David brought up (laughs) this topic and (laughs) at the end of the night he was like, look, when you see people at the top, you think, they know exactly what they yeah. do, but they really They've don't. They've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> they really, yeah. I'm sure they have some idea, but they're kind of like us. We're just really trying to make There's, it work yeah. <laughs> to do what we think yeah. is best. There's a common um, concept in research called imposter syndrome. Oh, and, it, yep. and it affects everybody from the most senior academics through to the students who are yeah. just starting out where you think at any point in time someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, look, We've worked out that you actually have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. It's time to pack your stuff and all. Yeah. I, I still get <laughs> such bad imposter syndrome. I'm like, I know everyone does, but you're like, I'm like, how did I get here again? Yeah. I just remember, um, I like when when you go into the PhD students' room, mm. um, and I guess because I kind of this was a little bit after I had submitted and I had graduated and. Um, yeah, they kind of just, I realised it just wasn't part of that, like, 
niche anymore. I wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. And they, uh, when I asked them about their life, I was like, so what's your research in? And, you know, they're really just, oh, so my research is in this and this and this. And I was like, wow, they feel so <laughs> informed. And I was like, man, I can't even explain what I was working on like five minutes ago yes. when I, before I came into the room. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing either. And this is one of the like, it's okay. You can say that you're still figuring out your research yeah. because I definitely at least still am like I don't even know how I did a PhD yeah yeah well it's like I like I I finalized my aims for my thesis after I'd written all my papers <laughs> like yeah I did that like, yeah like you look at it and it's like that final submission I'm like oh that aim's wrong yeah I'll just fix it so it fits in with whatever else yeah. I was doing exactly. yeah. like honestly like I think there's quite a lot of us who have like sometimes no clue what we're doing at times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely. Well, it's only in the last 12 months that I've been clear on what I'm studying as well. Yeah. It, t- it does take time. It takes yeah. time. Yeah. And Absolutely. It's just, you just learn over time that you just, oh, I, there's that saying, I, I can't remember what it is, just fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something to live by, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think one of the one of the joys of PhD and doing a PhD though is is that moment when you realise you have come up with something new yeah. or you've put mm. two and two things together mm. and you're like, oh God, like yeah. I've actually found something. <laughs> I've done something. I've done something <laughs> and that is so cool. Yeah. Um and it, those are the moments that I think really make it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Like you just have those moments of like oh, my gosh, after four years, I'm a genius. <laughs> you just take the win, honestly, in yeah. those moments. It might yeah. be so simple. Absolutely. It's like coming up with one sentence that just makes everything flow. Yeah. Honestly, when I have those moments when I'm just writing an introduction and I'm like, how do I link these two together? After two hours, I just come up with one sentence. I'm like, brilliant. Let's yes. take a two-hour break now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's it. And Students, like inexperienced students, get frustrated when their supervisors say, do a lit review or do a systematic review or whatever. And they're like, oh, I've done these loads of times. Why do I have to do another one? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's how you work out what you need to find out yeah. and what, what's already been done and what hasn't. Yeah. And so it seems boring, but writing an introduction is basically a lit review. Yeah. And so it's that process that, yeah. that leads you to where you're going to go. You learn a lot of things in your PhD mm. that you don't realise that you learn that aren't related to research. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely finding how long it takes for mm. you to come up with ideas or to actually, you know, um, you know, have a, like a sentence that kind of gives an overarching umbrella yeah. definition of your research. It, it takes time. It's, and it might seem so obvious, but mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. Just, yeah. For, for the papers that you've, you've published out of your thesis, um, did any of them take like an insanely long time from from start to finish? Like, what was roughly oh. the time period it took from like initial draft <laughs> to actually getting it published? The first one that I yeah. did, I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm very confused why that one took so long. Um, yeah. I know that like, it was the first paper that I wrote for my PhD, and. I think it, I was just slowly trying to be like, okay, this is how I kind of want to structure the papers in my thesis. And it always changes eventually. And then when we went to submit it, it was under review for like six months. Mm-hmm. And then so that one just took so long. I can't remember the exact time frame, but I feel like it was like 
a year because the second paper that I published for my thesis, I wrote it after that paper. Right. If that makes sense. So the paper that I wanted to be my first paper for my thesis actually became my second. Right. Mm-hmm. And the second one became my first. I, I'm not sure why. I think that was the case. But it was just, you know, a lot of external, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they they just take a paper um, when you submit it and it's just six months later, you're like, yeah. where is it? Hello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, did, did you guys forget that I submitted this paper? But um, yeah, it yeah. got accepted. But I was like, why did it, it take so long? long? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you're submitting to kind of niche journals, which I'm assuming you do yeah. for some of your work, they have a limited pool of reviewers. Yeah. And, and a lot of them are going to be conflicted because... They yeah. know your supervisor or you know yeah. someone that you're definitely a co-author with, and yeah, yeah I find that with mine because mm. it's a niche area. Yeah, when you do work in a small area, and I think um, not just for journal publications. Um, when I when I had my examiners for my PhD, you know, I I kind of ish knew them. There was no way to get around it because I had worked in, with road safety for like four years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I met one of them at a conference very briefly, but I'd still met them. And the other one I didn't really know of, but, you know, she probably would have known of me before she was asked to be an examiner. It's when you work in such a small area where, yeah, there's limited journals. I I think in all of my – I submitted five manuscripts for um, my thesis and – I think they only came from two journals. I only yep. they were all accepted into one of two journals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when it's just a small area, you kind of eventually, hopefully, get to know people in that area. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm. So, a few lessons that you've learned. One is that you need to stand up for your ideas yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, was there a changing point at some point, a turning point during your PhD when you thought, right, the issues that I'm having here with the logistics and the relationships? Yeah. This is how I'm going to get over it. Yeah. I don't think that happened during my PhD. Okay. <laughs> it's happened now, though. It's, it's kind of happened now, though, when I kind of was removed from the situation. Okay. Like, so after I submitted um, and I guess when I got my – when I assumed my postdoc, I guess, mm-hmm. my research fellowship with um, under – um, David Preen, who I used to sleep in, is like, I don't know why he hired me. But, um, and really, oh, I, when I I was removed from the whole area of road safety and went into a whole new field of research, and I feel like I still don't have a field of research at the moment, mm-hmm. um, but, and working with others as well, that's when I was like, Oh, so this is kind of what it should probably be like. Mm. You know, like so many things were so surprising to me. Like I realised maybe like supervisors should have a bit more of a hands-off approach rather Mm -hmm. than a really hands-on approach. I mean, I met with my supervisors several times a week throughout my PhD Um and then things happened and I didn't see my supervisor for a good six months. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay. But, yeah, um, I I almost wished I had a bit more of a hands-off approach because I felt like when I moved to David, who does have more of a hands-off approach, I was so scared of, like, am I doing this right? But I realised that, you know, David does trust me enough to know kind of what I'm doing <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. 
you know, he expects me to fall along the way, I'm sure. Like, he, he definitely, I guess he wants to put me in the, you know how to do your work, essentially. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, David's supervised, I think, maybe even up to 20, 15 or 20 PhD mm. students at this stage. Mm. I, I might have that in the figure wrong, but it's definitely <laughs> somewhere in the ballpark. So, and, and I'm sure some of those have gone not as well as others. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously they're, they're all learning experiences yeah. and to the point now where he's my primary supervisor as well yeah. as, as being your work supervisor. Mm. And, yeah, we have a pretty good understanding yeah. and system. You know, when I need his advice, you know, he'll make the time to provide it, but he's not breathing down my neck. Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, as a supervisor, I feel like the, however your supervisory style is, it... <laughs> You also have to consider how the student also works. They might work a lot better independently and, you know, every month they might meet up with you, give you an update. That's the best for them. And some people, some of them need a little bit more hands-on approach just to guide them, especially in the initial stages when we really don't have any idea what we're doing. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think it's both a nice synergy between the student and the supervisor. You need to figure it out both together how that supervisory style works almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, you sort of alluded to what you're doing now. You (laughs) you don't have an area, but I think you kind of are edging towards having an area. Yeah, I I think, I hope I am. Um, Yeah, it's kind of a bit weird because I know a lot of people continue on in their field of research sometimes or some people have been doing research in that area and then they take a PhD almost to become the expert in that area. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, my one, I was completely moving on to something different, um, partially because the Road Safety Centre moved away from the School of Population Health, um, but also because I felt like I needed to step away from that area. Um, so, yeah, I've been working under David since, who I guess took me under his wing. And um, I, I guess I do a bit of miscellaneous research work for David, but one of my primary areas is looking at HILDA data, so that's the Household Income, Labour and Dynamics in Australia. Um, so that's run by the Melbourne Institute, and it's really like a household panel-based longitudinal survey um, between, well, it started in 2001, and it's just every year, it's pretty much... A massive survey, and it's been ongoing. So the twenty twenty one wave, um, all of the data just got released just in December of last year. So, I mean, it's got a plethora of um, information, um, and that yeah, you can do massive longitudinal studies with it. So yeah, I've mm-hmm. been working with that with David and also Ian as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess those are my guys. Two primary supervisors for that. Ian Lee? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's also one of my supervisors. Oh, yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... So, so um, is that where your postdoc is going to head? Yeah, into? so when I first came on with David's team, I guess this was... I'm not too sure. I wasn't involved in the conception of the project, um, but they were like, well, this is the data we'd like you to analyse and we wanted to look at COVID, how the COVID pandemic um, affected a bunch of, like, um, outcomes many in many aspects of, like, the Australian population. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it is 
it's not exactly a health survey. It is more of an economics kind of survey um, with a big focus on employment and labour. There is a little bit of health stuff, but it, it's definitely not the focus point. Um, but yeah, because of the amount of information available from the HILDA data, you know, there's just so many different things to look at that I currently have about five manuscripts or <laughs> plan for that um, yeah. that I'm slowly pushing out. Um, yeah, it's – and so I guess the novel aspect of my – what we wanted to combine this HILDA data with was – the length of lockdowns and restrictions in Australia, um, because every state, it was, every state kind of made their own interdependent decisions about when to lock down and how long they would to lock down and when they would open up. And mm-hmm. we kind of wanted to see, you know, when you look at Victoria and Melbourne, people would lock down for like, oh, more than 150 days at times. Mm-hmm. Whereas in WA, we were only in lockdown and not really an official term lockdown for about oh, 40 days um, yeah. between 2020 and early 2021. The first time, mm. right? When, when we first yeah. had the... And that was really the only time where we were, well, in WA where we were locked down. Or, mm. um, and it wasn't even termed a lockdown by the government. Um, I used a lot of government documents to find out the dates. But when that first... The, so the first decision to lockdown, which happened in 2020 March, mm-hmm. it was a national decision. Mm-hmm. But that was the only national decision that was made about lockdown. Every other decision about lockdowns was um, state or territory-based decisions. Yeah. 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 Well, I think WA was interesting as well because we split ourselves up into six regions or something yeah. Yeah. at one point and you couldn't go from Perth. Yeah. To Bunbury or yeah, different regions. Yeah, yeah. And, and then obviously our state border got mm. shut several times as well. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really interesting because it, it, almost every different government had a different approach. Um, because we technically had fewer cases at the very start of the pandemic than I think Tasmania, but. Tasmania was in lockdown longer than us. So, you know, it, and I think it really depends on like the density, but also the health system and the resources available. But yeah, when we think, when I think about it, you know, by, we opened up in WA around April, May, uh, around May, I think it was, whereas Melbourne opened up and then they went straight back into lockdown until <laughs> October and uh, you just think how, you know, we're very lucky. We didn't really have a very prolonged impact and you wonder, we yeah, that's why we undertook all of these um, studies to kind of see were these really prolonged lockdowns over hundreds of days, did they have like a, um, were people who were living in Melbourne at the time, did they have a, much more poorer outcomes. Yeah, sort of like well-being and mental yeah. health and that sort of stuff. Yeah, mental health, well-being, and also employment outcomes, mm-hmm. um, and student outcomes. Yeah, a lot of it. 
If you found our podcast episode enjoyable today, it would be great if you could rate and review our podcast or this episode. It allows more people to listen to the information that we have and it also means that we get to see all of your feedback. So it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, so with this Hilda data set, you're, because it's longitudinal, it's done in 2001, obviously you're not involved in the collection of that data set. No. So you've received it yeah. as this like massive data set. Um, but your PhD, you collected your own data and you yeah. had a small cohort. Which kind of data do you prefer? Did you like oh. collecting your own and doing the interviews or did you like getting the big data set wow. and just getting straight into it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It definitely has its pros and cons. <laughs> You know what? I feel like I wish it would be fabulous if I was involved in the data collection of a massive study. Okay. Like I wish yeah. I, I would love to be involved in, like that with some reason. Yeah. I did love how I, when I um, designed the questionnaires for my own PhD, that, um, you know, I really could think about it. I could modify it. You know, I really had control over the data that was collected. Whereas the Hilda... Um, some of the questions I'm like, oh, I wish this could have been it's asked differently. <laughs> yeah. like, it's just like if you just asked it slightly differently, I could have had this outcome or I wish yeah. they asked this and you know, you but like, yeah, with my with my study, I'm like, oh, I only have like a we collected from like a thousand people, which was still mm-hmm. good, but like in the more focused, um, the smaller subgroup we only had ninety participants and you know, though it's not a very big number, you mm. know, whereas the Hilda, I have data from 17,000 or so participants. So yeah. it has its pros and cons. But, yeah, one day I would love to just be involved in designing the questionnaire for mm. a massive population-based study. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. What sort of, what sort of um, areas would you love to focus on with big populations like that if, you oh. had, if it was up to you? Wow. <laughs> I would just, I, well, lately I've been dabbling in the area of maternal health. Um, although that, that study that I'm proposing is using rain study data, okay. which yes. is almost like a little bit of an in-between because I think we have around 3,000 participants for the rain study. Don't mm-hmm. quote me on that. I was yeah. off the top of my head. That's about right. Yeah. And then, um, and they collect so much information. I reckon that would be a great study to collect information or design it for. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm like, I say I would love to do that one day, but I'm sure you have to have like a massive team of people to make <laughs> yeah. sure you don't miss anything. Yeah, but yeah. But mm. they're a very well-funded project, yeah. long-term, obviously, that's been going for over 30 years now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we've had them on the podcast and I think they might come back on at some oh, point. That would um, be great. <laughs> yeah, but really interesting project. Um what aspect of something like the RAIN study would you, what sort of data of theirs would you be looking to use? Well, for the RAIN study data that I'm proposing, I wanted to look at um, maternal stress and really how it affects um, the offspring um, because a lot of those studies look at early um childhood or infancy and early childhood, but no one really goes a bit further into late adolescence mm-hmm. or um, into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Although you really have to think about there's a lot of childhood factors that really affect adult outcomes, but it'd be really interesting to look at maternal stress and see if that has any contributing 
factors to any like stress-related behaviours mm. in adulthood as well. Okay. Um, so still fleshing out the details of this project, I've had a couple of meetings with the RAIN study data people and they, they seem very optimistic about this. So mm-hmm. just really trying to finalise it. It is the the data available for the RAIN study is, oh, there is so much that I'm trying to get my head around. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. A lot of it's sort of biological data, mm. um, which that's totally not my area at yeah, all. Yeah, neither. But the behavioural and the sort of health service outcome data would be really fascinating. Yeah, um, I would love to work with the biological data. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't really have that much experience and that's well, that's one thing that I would, um, you know, you have, I want to do something new that I haven't delved in before. So mm-hmm. I'm like, if I have the opportunity to use biological data, I know that it, you do have to think about like funding and costs because the biological data it does cost money to use. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love to work with it because it's not something I've worked with before. And I think with biological data, you know, that is kind of objective data mm. versus yeah. like subjective data, which is, you know, there's recall bias, self-reported bias and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they sort of both complement each other quite well. Yeah. Because the contextual data that you get from talking to somebody or interviewing them can help you understand the biology mm. um, because it might be like, why has this person got this biological outcome? Yeah. And then when you hear their story, you're like, right, now now it's starting to make sense yeah. why they're in this position and someone else who had a different experience is in a different position now. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'm very keen to work with RAIN. I've been wanting to work with RAIN study data for a while. I just wasn't sure in what. Um, but, yeah, I've been fleshing out this project for a while and I'm very optimistic about it. It's be something new and um, this is kind of the first time that I've really been involved in, like, the conceptualisation of this project as well. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited um, and terrified at the same time, but <laughs> I've kind of asked a couple people around the school to... Um, um, so I have Carol Orr yeah. and also Erin who... Um, I've asked that if I put this project together, would they be interested in um, being like investigators mm-hmm. for grants that I might also put forward as well? Because all, all of that, um, putting together a project and also grants and funding, grants and funding is completely new to me. I have never been involved in grant and funding before. Um mm-hmm. Which, which kind of a little bit stems from my um, PhD. I, for the longest time, until David told me when I was working for him, I was kind of under the impression that um, the only the director of a research centre applies for grants and funding, which is so ridiculous, but it was <laughs> so ingrained to me. I just was like, oh, makes sense. And then, you know, she, she organises the projects and applies for funding and then us as her staff would do the research for her. Yep. Um, that's how it kind of worked back then. <laughs> but, yeah. And then I remember David being like, yeah, like take the initiative. If you want, if you like find a project, put it together and let me know and then we can work it out. We could um, see what's available out there, what you want to work on. And I was like, but aren't you supposed to tell me what I'm working <laughs> on? I'm confused. Yeah. So that was a whole new concept to me. So I've actually never been involved in grant and funding before. And 
thankfully have pre-warned Aaron and Carol <laughs> that they may get real stupid questions about <laughs> because it, yeah, it was something that I didn't think I was really ever going to be involved in, but I'm like, well, going headfirst into it now. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you're being good hands with mm. those two as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They've both got, they're obviously still early career, but they've got good experience. Yeah. have been on grants and stuff before. Yeah. And so. I'm, uh, yeah, that's why I kind of pre-warned them. I'm like, I didn't exactly come from a very knowledgeable area. So, you know, I just, you might have to dumb it down for me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it sounds like there's some pretty interesting stuff on the horizon for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic, but then I'm, I'm very starting to feel the pressure and I feel like, ah, so this is kind of what it's like because oh, I feel like I should let PhD students know about this, but apparently I was on that PhD burner. I was still working furiously. So uh, <laughs> it's a weird concept to explain. So what happened was... In the last couple of months of my PhD, I was already working full-time for David. And so I was just working throughout my PhD, just doing the revisions, doing writing that thesis, getting it all together, but also working full-time. And then once that PhD was done, I was still working. Like I was like, things need to be done. And I was mm. just burning through it. Whole, as Gina used to call, I think she told me I was just like the PhD burner and then, um, yeah, you just have to be, you just have to take a step back and being like just breathe and don't get too burnt out because sometimes yeah. I definitely do feel like I work way too furiously. <laughs> it's a weird concept to describe, but um, mm. I just work with that same amount of stress that I had when I was working both full-time and doing my PhD. Mm. Yeah, I find that I lose perspective if I don't take a break. Yeah. Yep. And I come up with much better research ideas yep. if I'm not thinking about it all the time. Yeah. Like even I won't be thinking about it for a couple of weeks and then I'll just be like, that's a ridiculous way of mm. doing it. Why don't I do it this way? Or Yeah. You, know. you just yeah. you get stuck in that rabbit hole. Yeah. And I think when you don't take that break or you don't go like, okay, let's just put it to the side and revisit it later on. Yep. I think that's that's really not helpful if you if you don't do that. It's just something. Mm. If if you take a break for it for a week, guarantee you have like a different perspective on it. Yeah, for sure, totally. And you actually, ironically, get it done quicker usually. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Because otherwise, you'd be often. spending the week just staring at it. Yeah, <laughs> and probably making it worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've had a pretty good chat there, Wendy. Yeah. Yeah. I think we covered a lot of topics, and ho- topics. yeah, hopefully, people doing a PhD will get some useful yeah. information and um, perspective from your experience. Um, I know I have. <laughs> um, but, yeah, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was very fun and I hope I didn't ramble or speak nonsense half the time. <laughs> That's why we do this podcast. Exactly. We, we want the ramble. <laughs> That was our chat with Dr. Wendy Fang. Oh, she's so lovely, isn't she? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Her, her story in a PhD, I feel like there's there's so many elements that current PhD students can resonate with, mm. um, people that already have their PhD can resonate with, and um, some, some really good things to know if you're just starting out on that journey. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like you and I have probably been somewhat fortunate with 
ours the way ours are designed because we didn't have to actually go and interview people face-to-face during COVID or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm surprised that she got five papers out, to be honest. Like, it's, you know, obviously credit to her with with the work that she's done. Um, But, you know, I got five papers out and I have, like, a (laughs) freaking millions of data points (laughs) and I didn't have to collect anything and it was just there and me and my computer, yeah. turned up and you pressed (laughs) analyse. Exactly, Analyse all, the analyse all button. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, hats off to Wendy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it but, would have been a hard time yeah. navigating face-to-face data collection yeah. and COVID and everything else. All the other logistics um, and yeah. relationships and yeah. stuff that came with it. Um, but, yeah, really interesting and glad to hear that Wendy's fallen on her feet and is there's – Lots of different shoots yeah, springing up. Yeah, new opportunities. Um, and it sounds like Wendy could go in several directions and just probably needs to pick one or two. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, I'm sure if we watch this space, we'll, she'll be a superstar in years to come. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, if people have enjoyed this conversation or, or not enjoyed it for some perverse reason... <laughs> How can they get in touch with us? Uh, so you can email us at meaningofhealthatoutlook.com. You can tweet us at healthmeansbot. You can talk to us on Facebook, Meaning of Health Podcast. And yeah. you can also contact us on Instagram. Yeah. Health means what? Yeah. Same as Twitter. Twice. Yeah. Yeah. We might need to bring them all together. Have yeah. The same thing. But yeah. I feel like tough. Instagram, you can set it up to go directly to Facebook, right? Like if you post on Instagram, you can, it'll, yeah. it'll duplicate that's, it. That's really showing your age, though, Craig, because yeah. most people would have it the other way around. Instagram's the main one. That's what um, I mean. You, you post on Instagram. And yeah, then oh, it, and, and then it, it goes to Facebook? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I've okay. never, I don't think I've ever post, posted to Facebook and then had it replicate on Instagram. Yeah. Just because I stopped using Facebook years ago. Oh, yeah. 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 It's for the older people now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very meta. It is, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. uh, you know, Instagram seems to be the, the main one at the moment, particularly for um, my my millennial group. Yeah. Um, but I don't know about TikTok. Yeah. I know you wanted to do it, but... Yeah, not we'll, we'll probably see. need to cross that bridge you know, in a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, oh, just, I'm trying to get a PhD finished. Yeah, fair enough. I don't want to fall down <laughs> rabbit holes on the internet. <laughs> no, no, it's very easy to do as well. Yeah. Like, oh, gosh. Um, yes. So, quick update for, yeah. for the listeners. Yeah, so I've got three out of five papers published. Nice. Um and my last couple of papers, one of them's just about ready to go. Awesome. So in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Woo-hoo. And then the, ne- the one after that should follow a yep. couple of weeks after, hopefully. And then I'll just be a hermit for about a month, mm-hmm. month and a half, um, just finishing writing the actual thesis. And then hopefully we'll all be sitting in. in the same position well, hey. before too long. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, hopefully not in the same position because I'm hoping to get my feedback before yeah. <laughs> you submit yours. <laughs> Because that would be um, well, yeah, crazy. You should hopefully be graduating in the middle of the year, right? I have applied for the middle of the year. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes. So cool. if all if things go more smoothly, yep. then hoping middle of the year. Yeah, so mine's likely to be the end of the year. Yeah, So okay. we'll be almost at the same almost, time. Almost, yeah, same year. Apart. Same year. <laughs> yeah, but that would be good. We'll yeah. be able to look back with fond and maybe some not-so-fond memories. Yes, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to us and our, and uh, and Wendy, and we'll be back with another episode soon. 
The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Weber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.